Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another Words and Nerds episode where we bring literary goodness to your ears. Today we're doing something a little bit different. We have a panel of incredibly talented and creative women to talk about motherhood, reclaiming your identity after motherhood, fitting in creative pursuits, mother guilt, and how everyone fits their writing into all of this stuff. It's an honest look at how becoming a mother transforms us and how we manage to try and pursue creativity in all different forms, or perhaps it pursues us. I'm going to get our wonderful guests to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Millie Lewis, author of Mr. Price's Pet Emporium and mother of a rambunctious two and a half year old. I love the word rambunctious. It's one of my favourite <laughs> words. Me too. <laughs> I'm Beck Marshall Say. I'm the author of a children's picture book, Facing the Wave. And I have a um, two-year-old who has just discovered the joy of shrieking uh, and a nine-month-old um rapidly growing baby. Hi everyone, I'm Sandy Docker and I'm the author of Contemporary Women's Fiction and I am the mother of an angel baby and a 16-year-old daughter who's going on 35. (laughs) Oh, that's terrifying. (laughs) Hi, I'm Al Campbell and uh, my book's called The Keepers and I'm a mother of a nearly 21-year-old and a 19-year-old, two young men on the autism spectrum. Hi, I'm Gabrielle Toza. I am an author of young adult and children's books, and I have two little girls aged four and one. Hi, everyone. I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate. I am the author of Middle Grade Adventure Series and the mother of an 18-year-old who moved out in February and a 15-year-old who I'm currently texting to get off the PS4 so that you can all hear me. And the 18-year-old will be back, Al. I have a feeling they will come back. I don't know, I don't know if he will, to be honest with you, but we'll see. Hi, I'm Vanessa McCausland. Um, I'm the author of three contemporary fiction books. Um, I have a 12-year-old daughter who thinks that she's about 20 um, and who is currently obsessed with Twilight which is a bit of a flashback. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how as, you know, young teenage girls, we all want to be older and then we get older and we're like, oh, adulting sucks. <laughs> Take me back. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm Maya Linnell. I write rural romance for Alan and Unwin. I have three little bookworms aged 10, 12 and 14. And I also have five little lambs running around the paddock demanding to be fed three times a day. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I'm Sarah Bailey. I think I'm lucky last. Um, I'm the author of four novels uh, and one audiobook, all crime fiction. And I have two young sons. Um, one is nine and one is 13. Mm, wow, such a range. And I have an eight-year-old and an almost 10-year-old. Um, they're currently watching Harry Potter, so I can do this podcast. It is um, called High Quality Parenting, I think. <laughs> called Essential. <laughs> essential and sometimes sometimes you need to do these essential things just to get through the day so we've got so many people here with different experiences of motherhood and different stories to tell and you know please only tell what you're comfortable telling obviously because I know some people have got harder stories than others but let's start from the the young baby baby years and we'll go through because I know some of you have older children as well what was the most um challenging thing you found about having young babies gab let's start with you and anyone can sort of jump into the conversation when um something resonates with them well i'm in those trenches at the moment um with my 14 month old and i'm also juggling the four and a half year old as well and i have continued to work as a as a writer for harper collins throughout this whole process so the hardest change for me i suppose and 
it was just like a, a bomb thrown into my life was just that huge shift in time. Honestly, I, I never lost the, the passion, the ideas. I just lost the ability to do anything on my own, as we all understand, to wee on your own, go to the toilet on your own. Um, my children, I'd been told, I had been lied to by multiple writers who obviously had children that slept about how they wrote novels, entire novels during maternity leave, um, while they would take their children to a cafe and they would sleep in the pram for hours while they would pen their latest masterpiece. And before I had my baby, my first baby, I naively believed this. I was very head in the sand about it all. I was kind of like, cool, that's what I'll do. I was literally like, oh, great, that's what I'll do. I'll just write the next book during nap time. And then I had the most beautiful Velcro baby and all my plans went out the window. So for the last four and a half years, I have had to consistently um, rework my process. And obviously while you're in the trenches with sleep deprivation and all that as well. So um, I've really struggled with um, not having that time to focus on something that calls to me. Um, but I'm also really grateful that I haven't lost that part of myself um, because I do talk about this a lot with other writers and I know for some people they find even just clinging on to that passion really hard um, while for me the danger is more resentment brewing um, for not getting the time that I am craving so much. So I spend a lot of time really trying to like enjoy the season of life I'm in while also trying to carve out time for myself. It's an ongoing um struggle I guess four and a half years on and I just am trying to do the best I can while still working kind of and um and raising these two little bookworms of my own yeah and it is hard and I think I like the word craving because sometimes when it comes to your creative pursuits that's exactly exactly what it feels like you know you're craving to do that thing but your attention is being you know that way and, and then there's that that guilt you know that guilt they're not going to be little forever I need to enjoy this time so there's all these things coming at you I reckon um Millie you've got a little one how old's your littlest I do two and a half Mm -hmm. So have you found that, you know, craving or trying to fit everything in around little people? Well, my story is a little bit different, I guess, because I fell into writing while I was on maternity leave is a bit of a lifeline. So it wasn't a perceived, I guess, loss of time because I hadn't been doing anything like that before having a baby. But to me, the transition into new motherhood, I can only describe it as profoundly unsettling. Mm -hmm. um, almost sort of akin to wearing a skin that just doesn't quite fit you anymore, I think is the only way I can describe it. Um, and, you know, all the same pressures, a baby that was a difficult feeder and a difficult sleeper and me feeling quite disconnected with the person that I used to be before that and having received all those messages from people around me about motherhood being sacrifice and sacrifice being what you were supposed to be doing if you were going to be a good mum and where that left you in the space of a person who used to have passions and ambitions and interests. Um, it was just a funny, yeah, funny space to be in for a very long time. And then I sort of really decided that in the end I needed to do something for myself if I was going to be a good mum moving forwards because there was my cup wasn't getting filled with, with what was happening in the day-to-day -day. and that was when I took my first writing class. I'd always loved children's picture books and I'd always has, had an interest in writing and um, it all just sort of fell into place and I reconnected with somebody who was funny and had interests and could do things and learn new things and feel accomplished and confident. So um, I think that was uh, really transformative uh, and really nice to be able to give yourself the permission to explore something new. Hmm. It's funny that you say good mum because I've heard good mum, good wife. Does someone want to talk about that? Because it's, some, it's a kind of a phrase that really annoys me. Am I the only one here? It irritates me no end. And it was funny. I was actually trying to look up quotes about motherhood so I could drop something super profound while I was on this podcast and it seemed like it was my own idea. And it's amazing how many of them relate to sacrifice and mm -hmm. 
selfishness. Whereas if you look up what it means to be a good father, a lot of them relate to things like being somebody a child can look up to and emulate. But isn't that a funny dichotomy that women are supposed to give all of themselves and mothers need to give all of themselves, whereas men get to do the things that interest them and inspire their children? Oh, that makes me cringe. <laughs> to both mothers and fathers and I'm not saying we don't want to be good mothers and we're not good mothers but that whole narrative of in order to be a good mother you need to do a b and c and that's exactly what you were saying that whole sacrifice thing and I just don't think sacrificing yourself for everybody else actually makes you a good mum I think it makes it as Gab said you feel kind of resentful because you're craving that part of yourself Beck, how have you been with little people? Because you've got a littley too. I saw you with the sling. I love babies in slings. Makes me miss my sling days. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a little bit like Millie. I had a, I've had a real mixed experience. I have been working as a freelance writer of sorts for close to 10 years, but my break, so to speak, into being a published author rather than just a writer uh, came once I had my my first baby and like Millie my two kids are both pandemic babies so quite a weird space I guess to be starting a parenting journey in uh, that you are more isolated but uh, particularly when I had my my first baby Ari was literally the week that the world shut down so we just went into this bubble and it it might not be a popular thing to say but I I found newborn phase a, a piece of cake it was I felt that there were no expectations, that you just had to nest in with your baby. No one expected anything of you. I had no expectations apart from to sort of nourish and support this baby and everything else was a bonus. Um, I do acknowledge my partner was off for the first three months with both of our bubs and that certainly helped as well. But I had some beautiful times where I got to do things, um, something I really love called the read and feed. So instead of sitting there on Instagram. Um, I think Al might have referred to it somewhere as doom scrolling on Twitter. Um, so instead of doom scrolling, I was, you know, reading and, and romping through books and things like that. And I actually wrote Facing the Wave when I was rocking Ari to sleep when he was about seven months. I think it gets harder though as that five, six months creep in, the adrenaline wears off. People start expecting you to come back and be a fully functioning human in in all sorts of ways. And this is your new normal, you know, and obviously you know that your child's always there, but your child's always there. You're not getting a break. And um, for me, it's that mix of I I really embraced working in the cracks, whereas before I used to hours and dream of, I describe it as a full pot of tea and a clean desk in three hours I'm interrupted, whereas now I'm much more enthusiastic about just writing in the cracks. But at the same time with my, you know, my first book coming out this year and having two babies now, um, I, I really do crave time for the business aspects of writing that need a bit more time and a bit more um a bit more reliability. I had my first author visit uh, to a school the other week and, you know, everyone says, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And my husband messaged me at 9am and said, the baby's still not asleep, he still won't sleep and he's normally been a great napper. And then he messaged and said, and the oven's just died. And then at 11 o'clock I got a message saying, he's only had 20 mils of milk even though he's always taken a bottle before this. Um, so, and then I got home to a baby that had managed to, you know, develop conjunctivitis and had a cold and hadn't fed properly all day. Um, and we sat down, had this beautiful, lovely cuddle in the afternoon, but it's hard, you know, the, the front, you know, the front was, it was exciting. It was my first big school visit. Um, and then at home, everything was literally falling apart. Um, but you, yeah, you, you get through it and adapt and it's, it's definitely had some big highs as well as some struggles and slogs and you know wishing for more time and and things like that yeah and I feel that way when you've got to put on this face at work so you turn up to work and people don't know what you've done in the morning and you know it's usually you get up really early but the other night the other morning I had to dress my daughter for school in the dark because I had to get up so early for work because I had to go in the office that day had to do all that stuff and no one sees it. You turn up to work and everyone's like, oh, she's fine. And then you go home and she's fine. And like, I've still got another two hours to go pick them up. And then I've got to cook dinner and all that kind of stuff. Sarah, I know you work full time and you have two, um, you know, boys. 
um, sort of similar age to mine. Do you feel like that people are either not interested or they see that you put this face on at work and you've also got all these other things running through your mind? Like, is that hard to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's really, it's nice listening to everyone talk about, you know, little little kids, little people. Um, that feels like such a long time ago. Like I can barely, I mean, I can remember, obviously, um, but it's it's hard in a very different way now. You know, I mean, the kids do an awful lot now. They will get themselves ready. They're in the way physically a lot more, sort of always, you know, lying in front of my heater or in my room or just sort of, sprawled somewhere in the house um, but they they are self-sufficient and you know for a lot of um, the tasks that are done around the house I don't have to do them for them um, they kind of stay where I put them or they are safe where I put them which is helpful um, but I mean yeah I do remember um, I remember like distinctly because I went back to work both times when my kids were six months old um, four to five days a week and I wasn't really writing um, until after my second child was born and I was quite young and you know going into work and people talking about being tired and then me just thinking <laughs> like I've been up since four o'clock I've already cooked dinner for tonight so that's good but um, tired is different and I mean I've never been a great sleeper but you know it's a different kind of tired when you've been working up three times um, and then you're still up trying to do a full day of work so I think not being resentful was a big thing for me I know Gabrielle you just said that too like and it wasn't really being resentful towards the kids as much as it was just towards other people like I'd sort of had to really go like you're not tired I'm tired yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like my lovely young team at work that was so energetic and and full of complaints about their energetic lives I had to kind of be like they didn't choose to have my baby I chose to have my baby so that's not their fault um so, yeah, I really have learned, I think, to sort of remember that everyone is coming with their own stuff and, you know, a lot of the busyness in my life, I choose it. But it so doesn't mean to... you can't still have a hard time. Like I hate that when people go, oh, you can't complain about it, you chose to do that. It's like, well, I can still tell you it's hard. No, I think it's not sort of that, like, you know, you don't want to kind of sometimes have a moment of feeling slightly sorry for yourself, but I think it's also... It's more reframing it, I think, to sort of go, well, I do enjoy writing more than I don't or I enjoy working more than I don't, so therefore even when it's difficult, I kind of have to remind myself that ultimately I like it more than I dislike it. So, you know, there's no point being angry at, at the thing that you kind of ultimately do want to do. Um, and, I, and I think there's a big, I always talk about this, there's a big difference between... Um, what you choose to do with your minutes versus kind of looking at like a whole year and the minutes can be really hard and the hours you know the days but overall if you look back and you've achieved you know writing a book or something you, you will never regret those minutes in the long run even if they feel difficult in the moment so it's I think it's the same with writing or work or probably parenting as well you know it's it is that different reframing I think. Mm, no it's exactly right and it's about you know, what's hard at the time was funny. So I was driving home today and, you know, I was remembering those really hard times with kids. And I remember my son just never slept, hated being away from me, Velcro baby, cried all the time. And I remember having, I just remember because I was driving past this place where I had to pull over on the way back for my mum's because he was just screaming to the point of vomiting. And so I had to stop in some random car park and then get him out and feed him. And it was raining and I'm just like, oh my God. And you, those moments you kind of think you're never going to get through or past and I was thinking back you know it's nearly 10 years ago now thinking wow you know how big that moment was then and how much has happened since so it's interesting you know in those moments things seem so big sometimes. Uh, I, I was just just to add to your story I was thinking the other day how glad I am that when I went back to work the first two times there was no video calls because <laughs> the stuff that I used to do on con calls is insane like I'd be breastfeeding I'd be like changing kids on the floor and like managing a meeting with you know a high sort of financial client or something and just doing the most insane kind of things behind the scenes so I think I'm yeah I'm kind of glad that I would have loved that toss the nappy over there like doing the deal outrageous outrageous stuff that you just would not do on video yeah, Zoom now you have to look good from the waist upright at least, you know, <laughs> unless you're in trouble. 
May, you've got uh, kids a similar age. Tell us about your journey of creativity and, and what, what it's like now compared to when they were really little. Yeah, so when I uh, finished up work to have children, um, my son came early. So he was five and a half weeks prem, which kind of threw a bit of a spanner in the works. And I had the cloth nappies. I had all these great intentions. But I worked out really quickly that I had no idea what I'm, I was doing, even though I have three siblings, I was an au pair overseas, I'd babysat throughout high school. So it was quite a rude shock. And then I got sick, really, really sick. And this time, 14 years ago, I was in a mother baby unit in Werribee. I didn't know anyone in the city. My husband had to look after our brand new couple of weeks old son uh, all by himself. And it was absolutely petrifying. So that was a real shock. And it took a long time for me to get well after that. But not just the shock, but when I started writing about it, because I'd always written as a journalist, even um, just in my spare time, I'd always found that putting words on the page was my way of working through things. So I thought, well, I'd never heard of this postpartum psychosis, this amazingly epic mental health problem that affects newborn mums with newborns well I'm sure there's other people that haven't heard of this either I'm going to write some articles I'm going to pitch them to magazines and try and get them to publish them because this is really important like I could have died my baby could have died but no one had ever told me about it Um, and the magazines weren't interested they're like yeah no we'd like some stories about things like fancy cloth nappies and stuff like that so that was a real shock um anyway fast forward we were celebrating his first birthday with champagne that you know we'd all survived this huge incident um and then I'd started looking at what I would do I was quite scared about going back into the workforce not just because I'd had that huge confidence knock and I'd always been such a confident person uh and I'd always been really happy going into work and, and doing what I did at the country newspaper and you know doing some freelance stuff as well and then comms and media so I was happy to be a stay-at-home mum for almost eight years and looked after uh, three beautiful children. Uh, And when I started thinking about, well, what will I do? Will I go back to journalism? Will I maybe, you know, retrain and do something different? So my something different was fiction writing. And for me, I felt like that was a really safe, um, I guess, goal to, to try and strive for because I got to stay home. I didn't have to, you know, go out and about so much. And I was always very extroverted. Uh, so it was quite a shock to me that I didn't really feel like doing that, getting out and about so much. Um, but yes, ultimately, it was really nice to regain my sense of self. Once I'd recovered from that, we yeah, went on to have more children and luckily, it was just a one-off complete freak incident, as it usually is for one in a thousand mums. And yeah, so now I, I was writing um, those articles that I wrote for the magazines that didn't want them. I gave them to Panda and they put them on their website. So that's the Post and Antenatal Depression Association of Australia. I think that's the correct terminology. Uh, and those stories I know helped plenty of people because when I was sick, uh, well, when I was recovering, it made me feel so much better to hear that incidents like this and, you know, postnatal anxiety, postnatal depression were being talked about and people were writing about them and sharing their stories. So for me, that was one of the things that kind of put me on the path to wellness. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Maya. And it is, it's terrifying. Um, and, And not enough people talk about it. You know, we talk about all the other things, you know, and then there's lots of judgment. Like, I don't think you can win. You sleep train, you don't sleep train, you breastfeed, you don't breastfeed. Everyone's got an opinion about it. I, I suffered postnatal anxiety too, and I had not heard anything about it. And you just feel so alone. I was waking up at 3am with panic attacks. I just lost my auntie as well, like who I was very close to. And so all these things collided, you know, that whole, I've just brought life in, but I've experienced this death. And it was kind of taking up a lot of space in my brain. And I thought, geez, it'd be nice to just be able to talk to someone who's experienced postnatal anxiety. And I just, I could hardly find anything on it. And it was just such a terrifying experience, you know. And in that state, as you know, you're not really thinking clearly because you're also trying to keep a baby alive. And so it, it took so much just to be able to get myself to see a psychologist so I could try and get well. But it's like, you know, where are my people? Who else is, you know, experiencing this or has experienced that? I felt like you had to go through a lot of that alone, which, you know, it, it kind of makes me so 
frustrated that you know we're not having enough of those conversations and that magazines didn't want to take them like one in a thousand for postnatal psychosis like that's a lot of women who are experiencing that all the time yeah absolutely and by sharing my story I know of a few people who um their friends sisters have had it and they've contacted me and said Maya you know can you please speak to her she is so um, shell-shocked from the whole experience so speaking to someone who's gone on to be successful in their field you know that you've got I've got three really healthy children and you know they're really bright and you know I've been able to put together different steps in my life that I'm so proud of that I definitely didn't think that I could do when I was in that phase of recovery so it's amazing our brains are so clever and they can be so harmful and so dangerous as well yeah absolutely Vanessa you've got kid uh one child sorry of a similar age around 12 tell us about your experiences from baby to now to fitting in creativity yeah it does seem like a really really long time ago but it's so lovely hearing everyone's experiences it's kind of just taking me right back there um and I relate so much to so much of what what you guys have shared um, yeah, so my experience was, um, I think in retrospect, I think I probably had a little bit of postnatal anxiety and depression. I went from being um, a full-time journalist, like just every day going out, covering stories, really high pressure. And I did, I really wanted to have a child and stop, but I think just the huge shift in kind of um, personality that you go through when you're this sort of person achieving huge amounts of things, meeting lots of people, to then being in this, like, tiny cocoon. It was a bit of whiplash. Um, and so, yeah, I think I really struggled during that time. And at the time I hadn't written, um, hadn't written fiction really at all, except for, say, in high school. Um, and so I, I think I just started writing as a way to... Um, maybe, I mean, I'd written as a journalist, obviously, nonfiction essentially for 10 years, um, and I just knew that I needed to keep writing somehow. So that's when I started my first book. Um, and I think in many ways that kind of saved me. Um, and I had a child that had ended up having severe food allergies. So there was a lot of anxiety about that and discovering all of that. Um, and so it was just an outlet. Um, and yeah, I've sort of, it's interesting. A few people have said to me, um, you know, why don't you write in your books about some of your experiences with motherhood? But I almost feel like I want to escape all of that with my writing. I want to write about something that's not to do with motherhood. Um, because that's probably how I started off writing in the first place. Um, but I think now that um, Soph's a lot older and, you know, things things get a lot easier, I'll tell everyone who's <laughs> got tiny children. They really do. Um, and so, yeah, I think just now I'm starting to go, okay, I think I can delve into some of that stuff that I went through. Um, and I know with the book I'm working on now, I delve into um, postnatal anxiety and depression a little bit and I can I can go there now um, but I couldn't when I was living it um, and yeah in terms of creativity um, and parenting I, I do like I know a lot of writers um, and a lot of creatives and we have this discussion all the time about is it is it as hard for people that don't have that full-on creative need in them is is parenting easier maybe I don't know um just because I always feel the pull to write and I always feel it's like a selfish need that I need to fulfill to be balanced and happy um and I feel really bad about that and so it's just always balancing that guilt um and particularly you know when she was young it was really, really strong. Now, now, when when they go to school, I think it gets easier because you do have a bit more time, um, even if you're working, as well as trying to write um, write books. But um, yeah, it's it's been a journey, that's for sure. Mm, and the mother guilt is something 
I, I was really, I didn't expect, it really surprised me. You know, every time you went out, left the house, even for a coffee or went to work, even going to work, it was so much guilt about everything that you yeah. did because I think of that narrative of oh, what it takes to be a good mother must sacrifice everything, which is so bad for our mental health, I think. And so that mother guilt, I still have it. I, I really try hard to push against it and go, no, no, as long as I have quality time with my kids. But I don't know, maybe it's something just in us that yeah. you know that we can't escape even if we push back from it. it's a weird feeling well as a mother you want to you want to be the best you can be for your mm. child I mean that's the thing it's almost like choosing between the things that are most important to you your whole being and your soul that you pour into your writing and your whole being and your soul that's your child <laughs> And maybe that's what we're trying to do, trying to find space for everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, Al, you have a 16-year-old downstairs taking up your Wi-Fi, an 18-year-old who's moved out who I reckon is going to be back. <laughs> Tell me about your experiences as they've grown up because now having grown up kids, it's a whole different experience, I imagine, but not any easier, I don't think. No, it's interesting because I'm I'm listening to this conversation and I, you know, it doesn't feel that long ago that, you know, that I brought home the 18 year old from the hospital and found myself sitting there and I was working um, prior to, to that. I had been uh, three days a week um, at Clio and I was two days a week freelance. So I had been kind of segueing into, into freelancing and I thought I was going to have, you know, a year off to experience, you know, mother bliss. And um, I remember sitting there and he was about three months old and I'd read him, you know, his story and I'd, start I'd read him half of my novel and we'd been for a walk and I'd changed his clothes and he'd been just you know he'd slept and he'd eaten and he'd woken and I was so bored I could not actually even cope with myself like it was really difficult because you know obviously there wasn't a lot of sleeping there was a lot of crying there was all that sort of stuff but it was also and this I don't think is ever discussed quite enough um newborns are boring they are so boring because they do not talk back to you and you spend your whole life like honestly he he spoke his first word at about five months because I think it was because I narrated my whole life to him and now we're buying broccoli and now we're walking to the corner and now we're doing this and now we're doing that um and I think it was just because I was just like spending not used to spending so much time on on essentially on my own um so I wrote my first freelance article when he was three months so for me at that stage, any time that I had was all about paid work because, you know, we were a young family living in Sydney, you know, let's face it, I needed the money. Um, so I was pitching and I was wedging in deadlines and I was ringing people with him under one arm and I'm sort of trying to do interviews with people who really didn't understand that I had a baby under my arm. Um, and then, of course, I also wanted to write novels. I had had this was a dream. I'd started working on on women's fiction and so I had to work out how I was going to fit that all into the 45 minutes a day that he slept. Like, how was I going to do all of the freelance articles and how was I going to fit the the um, the fiction and stuff in? Because the fiction was what I really wanted to do at that stage. Um, so I, you know, he, I started with a routine really early and it was the only way that I could manage it. And my children... <laughs> pretty much just like grown up through this routine I mean people say to me um you know like you, you like it because particularly when they were younger it was like no I can't do that I'm doing this and I can't do that I'm doing this and my sisters would be like you need to be more spontaneous and I'm like I need to write 2,000 words I don't have time for this spontaneous thing you're talking about so for me it was about fitting it in um and the only way that I could fit fiction writing in was to do it in the middle of the night when everybody was asleep Nobody needed me. I knew no one was going to come looking for me. There was no guilt about that because it was it was my time um, and I've always been sort of an insomniac. Now, as they've got older, they physically have become a lot easier, obviously, apart from the fact that they clutter the place up a lot. Um, they're so enormous. When they, <laughs> they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, but apart from that, so they, so from that perspective, you know, they do get easier. They can make their own lunch. They can tie their own shoelaces, happy days. Um, what I found though, particularly over the last couple of years with the pandemic and things and with my 18 year old was trying to shoehorn and shove a child through that HSC period, um, with all of that stuff going on. And then also with the, you know, we had the year nine homeschooling. Well, that was fun. Um, you know, there was a lot of that sort of stuff going on. And it, what I found was I couldn't find the space to think. So when I had newborns, 
you know, I was tired and physically it was demanding, but I had a lot of time to think. There wasn't a lot of, you know, that they didn't require me to even speak to them, you know, once I got over narrating the broccoli. They didn't require me to talk to them. I could be somewhere else while I was pushing them down the slide. As they get older, you have to be present because you've got to read the signs. You've got to find out whether the fine from school is actually fine or mm. if there's, you know, been some major incident that the school's about to ring you about. Um, so I think it's that it's that mental space. I think bigger, bigger kids have bigger problems. Sorry, people, but they do. <laughs> um, I don't want to break, burst your bubble and I don't want to talk to you about year nine because we can talk about that when you've, everybody's progressed oh, a bit more. I used to be a high school teacher, Al. I know about year nine. I talk to you know parents and they've got two or three year olds and they're like I just don't know what to do and I'm like let's not talk about you nine um but yeah so like I think it's just that headspace and you I wasn't ready for that I wasn't prepared for how much of my thinking time was going to go into how they were and whether they were coming home in a car with a 17 year old pee plater stuff Mm. like that you know oh that's gonna hurt my feelings when that happens Mm. Mm. Yeah, but it's funny that you know we don't realize that because I still need my mum now. You know, I'm still calling my mum when I have a crisis. So you know, I can't expect my. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Um, Sandy, tell me about your experiences. You also, you know, mentioned your angel baby as well. Don't know how much you want to talk about, but how's your experience been? Yeah, I'm very open about my angel baby, and it comes back to what Maya was saying that you know we don't talk about these taboo subjects enough, and we need to. you know, an angel baby, I became one in one in four, you know, it's one in four women that either lose a baby during pregnancy or immediately after giving birth. So we should all be talking about this, you know. Absolutely. And I have, like Mayor, I've written articles and it did bleed its way into one of my novels um, at one point. But yeah, it was, um, the timing of it was very interesting. I had started, uh, you know, playing with the idea of writing before I had children and I had got myself to the point where I had finished that manuscript that we've all got that stays in the bottom drawer that will never ever be released to the public but at the time I thought it was great and I had just worked up the courage to send that out to get a professional manuscript appraisal done on it and the week that it came back to me the feedback was the week that we lost our baby And so that got put in a drawer and left for there for about a year. So I kind of had a false start, I guess, um, in terms of my writing because there was no way in that headspace I could even consider, you know, looking at that manuscript and particularly looking at that feedback because, as we all know, you know, it's it's not always pleasant when you get your feedback from your manuscript and I knew that. So I didn't touch my writing after that for quite some time and it wasn't until my second child, the one who's now 16, uh, was probably a year or two old that I went back to my writing. It took me that long, you know, to feel that I could find those creative juices again or that I wanted to even, you know, I, I haven't obviously suffered everything that you can suffer in life. I've not been tortured. I've not lived through a war. But losing a child is one of those things that is is one of the hardest things that you can can go through so there was no space after that for for writing uh, but when my 16 year old was you know a baby I, I went back to it and started exploring it a little bit more than it took me quite a long time then um, to get into it it wasn't until she started school that I really took it seriously and I was a stay-at-home mum uh, for that period and that was when I really got into my writing um, but of course, as um, Alison says, you know, bigger, bigger children, bigger problems. And I'm bursting that bubble as well. When uh, Miss 16 was seven, she was diagnosed with a life-threatening, lifelong illness. And so that kind of flipped my life upside down again. And the writing got put away again at that point. And it was a few years after that that um, I ended up with my publishing deal But even now, now that she's 16 and fairly independent and more independent than I want her to be, not as independent as she wants to be, (laughs) um, you know, those problems remain. You know, I'm on deadline at the moment to hand in some edits. And on Sunday night, her medical situation went pear-shaped and I had one hour's sleep on Sunday and then I had to try to get this blooming edit done, you know, on Monday. And it's, it's interesting how we have to balance those 
needs and I can't remember who it was that said about you know as the mum we're expected to make those sacrifices you know this is my job now writing is my job I'm on my fifth novel now but it's not my husband that sits up at night time to sort out the medical issues it's not him that gives up his day of work on Monday when Sunday night has gone pear-shaped it's me and I don't, I don't know the answer to juggling those things um but I also wouldn't give it up yeah. You know, I, I still feel quite protective of her, probably more so than I would if all of those things hadn't happened to us. You know, when he does offer to help, I actually refuse it. And that's, it's ridiculous, right? He goes, oh, you know, I, I can do this. And I'm like, no, 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 it's my baby. I have to, I have to be there. And I'm useless at juggling that mother guilt and the working guilt and which one is going to take priority it's mm. it's something that I'm still grappling with and I imagine I probably will for a really long time mm. and that's something I think I've always grappled with too you know you want them to want you and when they're sick you know you want to stay up with them but then you're like well why am I the one staying up with yeah. them so it's like this yeah. this real conflict of you want to be doing it but you get so tired it's like you know well why is it always me and that's obviously not the situation in every family it's just you know our experiences but yeah and that's what it is it's a constant conflict it's a constant juggle it's a constant um you know complexity as they grow and we're hearing it doesn't get any easier either so yeah sorry about that <laughs> no but I always think you know as we know you know we're talking about the hard things but you know motherhood is also the most rewarding and I almost think Think of all the hard things that you've ever done. They've also been the most rewarding. So maybe they come together. I don't know. Maybe they go together. Yeah, and when I get in that space where, you know, you go down that slippery slope of why me and why am I doing this again and, you know, why do these things happen to us and can't I just have a break uh, and, and those sorts of thoughts, you have to pull yourself back from that and... I've written an article about this before, you know, and we talk about, you know, we're not just a mum, we're all these other things as well. But when you look at all of those other things that you are, whether it's a wife or a sister or, a, you know, a teacher or whatever it is that we do, of all of the things that make up who I am, what would be the one thing I would not give up? Mm. And that would be my kid. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's why I think they might go hand in hand. Now, Al Campbell last, lucky last, but you've got a fairly unique experience that I know you were quite open talking to me about last time we spoke on the podcast. Tell us about your experiences. Well, I'm a bit of an outlier um, with, with my situation because even though the boys are adult age, you know, they're always going to need my care so they won't be moving out or getting pee plates or anything like that. None of that's going to happen. So work and home is sort of the same thing, um, really. Um, so, yeah, as, as we discussed on, on, on the, the first time we met on the podcast, I, I came to writing really late and, uh, and that was sort of to do something to get me out of my head, even though... The writing I ended up doing was all about what was in my head. So I don't know whether that was all, all that clever. Um, and, I mean, in terms of routine, there's no routine. There's no, there's very little predictability. There's very little that I can control, which I suppose is why, you know, I've, I've had to go extreme in terms of, you know, the hours that I, just like um, Al Tate was saying, she she was a midnight writer. Well, I'm a 4 a.m. writer because that's pretty much the only time I can guarantee that there's going to be quiet and I'm not going to be needed. Um, but also just coming, picking up on what something that Maya said and, and Vanessa said, Vanessa used the word saved me writing. Her creativity had saved her and Maya said a, a similar thing. I'll just relate um, without getting too heavy. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, I've had to face an issue. Um, my youngest son is profoundly autistic. He's non-verbal. He has Crohn's disease. Um, and he's 19 now. And I sort of had to face an issue that is 
massive and solutionless, unsolvable, and it's going to affect him for the rest of his life, me for the rest of my life. And it destroyed me. You know, it was one of those where I was so freaked out. I lost it. There was no shit held together, you know, for a couple of weeks. I did a lot of ugly crying in front of way too many people. If poor dear Danuka McKenzie was here, she would attest because poor Danuka was one of those people that saw lots and lots of ugly crying coming from this direction. Um, And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get past it. I couldn't have a conversation with anyone about anything. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't, uh, I sat down to pay a bill and two hours later I hadn't paid the bill. I don't know what I had done, but I hadn't paid the bill. I couldn't read. I couldn't watch television. You know what I mean? I couldn't settle. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't focus. But you know what happened? I wrote 15,000 words in seven days. Now, isn't that bizarre? And maybe for some writers that's their norm. But for me, I've got a daily goal of 500 words and I kind of think that was some kind of extreme survival instinct where you know that higher woman inside who really knows what's going on just kind of went okay hun let's talk turkey here you know you've got to do something you can't get out of this house you can't go for a holiday you can't stop start drinking and drugging and having sex with random men you can't start doing any of that so you just got to do what you can do and maybe you need to write and so I think it all sort of channeled into that and I I think I think that's almost it's like my vice you know Mm. in a way in a strange sort of way if I hadn't have done that I think I'd have sort of shriveled up and died in a ditch somewhere you know what I mean Mm. so um yes I'm not that's certainly not, I'm not writing a book about, you know, a how to write craft book. Have major personal crises and, you know, you'll, you'll find your way through. No, but um, certainly for me it's become the thing I really need to do that just stops me, that just takes me out of myself or something. Do you, <laughs> think, Al, do you think, Al, that it has something to do with uh, one of the things I found when, the kids were young and boring, you know, boring and all of those things I was talking about was that I, I didn't feel particularly in control of any aspect of my life at that point, but I could control what I put on the page. Like it was the only thing I could control. Do you think it had something to do with that? Oh, I think it's got everything to do with that, mm. Alison. And, and, you know, the other thing coming back to when, you know, you were sort of narrating life, oh, God, what I wouldn't give for an adult conversation yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so I guess it's awful, it's awful to say that, um, but I'd just like to talk to someone, you know what I mean, who's a grown-up. And, this and is how the podcast was born, Al. I, I was sitting in the dark <laughs> well, with my non-sleep. I was like, I need some conversations yeah. about something that I find yeah. interesting. And Words and Nerds was born. And here we are, yeah, five uh, years yeah, later. Yeah. Well, sort of kookily, I'm, I'm sort of, creating people to have conversations with which is maybe a bit tragic but Not it's working for me it's mm. keeping me you know upright and um and stuff so yeah mm. I really like what you said about the higher woman inside because I do find when <laughs> things get really hard you do find that kind of strength that you didn't even know you had in store it's like mm. oh okay cool I yeah. can get through this you know, and yeah, I, I don't we've have all it. Had, she has it. <laughs> we've all had the different struggles, and you know that, that have, and we've all gotten through because we're all sitting here. Um, I can't believe that it's been nearly been an hour because I could listen, honestly, listen to you all all night. But I want to do just a really quick whip around before we go. Thirty seconds. I'm really passionate about changing the narrative that's out there about women. Um, I'll go first. The narrative that I would really like to see change out there or have more conversations is about being a single mum. 
when I ask someone, oh, give me five adjectives that you talk about, you know, you think about when you hear of a single mother, and I'm not going to repeat them because I'm not going to feed into that narrative, but none of them were complimentary, can I say? And so I started saying, well, what about resourceful? What about highly independent? What about, you know, financially savvy? What about really organized? And they were like, oh, yeah, I suppose they need to be those things too. So that's the kind of narrative that I think still exists out there about women and about motherhood. So if we can have like a 30 second whip around, what narrative would you like to change and have more conversations about? Can I start with you, Gab? Absolutely. I would love to change the narrative that you are expected to be some kind of superwoman juggling everything. Um, and it's something that people will say due to the highlight reel of social media, obviously, um, due to the timing of when my um, some of my books have come out, it has appeared due to social media that I have somehow written that book while you know in the throes of newborn life or something like that but I'd written the book years earlier and it's only just come out and so I, I spend a lot of time kind of pushing back because people love to use that word superwoman when really behind the scenes I am drowning or feeling like I'm being dragged along a river you know and trying to keep my head above water um for me it's very much something I'm trying to remind myself that they're not to have that expectation of myself because um that's just really impossible. Yeah, um, and that was exactly this conversation. You know, Superwoman's dead. We don't want to do everything. We never asked to do everything. We're not interested in doing everything. Sorry. <laughs> a great, a great um, philosophy, I suppose, about depending on what season of life you're in, about leaning into certain or tilting towards certain parts of your life. And I'm, I'm trying to do that, even though my life is a big blurry mess between work and and personal it's always it has been for a very long time since I went freelance so um I'll be like okay Tuesday I might be tilting into motherhood all day and then on Monday when they're both in care I'll be tilting towards that side and I mm. give myself permission to basically check out for that, like that and then look I do my best to you still get the occasional call to or fill in that preschool form or whatever it is that snaps you back to reality um but it's important. I do try to do that. The tilting helps. I like that. I like that. A that lot. was far more than 30 seconds. I could talk all night. <laughs> no, it's because we're passionate about it. Um, Sarah, what would you like to change the narrative? How would you like to change it? Uh, I mean, I, I think the mother guilt conversation is really interesting. I don't, I really actively reject it and, and don't actually experience a lot of it now. You know, if something goes wrong, obviously that's different, but I think it's also been something that I've been quite honest with my kids about. You know, I, I like doing lots of different things. I like them as well, but there's other parts of my <laughs> life that I enjoy. And I don't think anybody wants a society full of unhappy parents, particularly mothers. You know, that's not healthy for kids either. So I'm quite good at saying to them, I'm going to come to this thing of yours, but I can't come to this thing. I'm either working or I'm doing something else and it doesn't, make it any less important it just means I can't always be there um, and I think they kind of understand that there's things I really enjoy that make me happy and that hopefully will make them happy so I've, mm. I've really actively rejected it for at least a decade and I think love it it's made everyone happier so that's we what need, I'd like we need change. a t-shirt reject mother guilt I'll buy one to grow up and pursue their interests as well and not feel guilt or bad about having those passions themselves, right? Like, exactly. Definitely. Yeah. Maya, what about you? Changing the narrative? Oh, I think um, encouraging our kids to be really independent is really important to us. We kind of let them do a bit of free ranging and, you know, there'll be some days when I don't have the interest in making dinner because I've been flat knack or whatnot. Um, you know, I love baking and sometimes I'll whip up these amazing things, but sometimes kids will have wheat mix for dinner and they think that is wonderful. I love that, man. When I'm not interested in dinner, I love that so much. <laughs> So, you know, some, some days it just won't go well and I'll be on deadline like I am at the moment and things are just out, a bit out the window. So someone will say, oh, well, why don't we have a feast for dinner? So some cheese sticks and a cut up apple and an orange and a, you know, a little rolled up bit of ham or cereal. And it's like, yes, great, done. <laughs> and who said that isn't dinner food? Who made that rule? <laughs> exactly. So I think it's whatever works for you in whatever situation you're in and however you can manage to do it. Right. 
Absolutely. Vanessa, changing the narrative. Um, a bit of what everyone said, really. Yeah, just leaving that guilt behind. Um, it's really hard to do. But, um, you know, like I've just had lucky, lucky me, all these things that I've had to, you know, go into state or um, that I've had to leave my family behind to go and do like, you know, writers festival here and there, that sort of thing. And and my daughter looks at me like, are you going away again? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. But I have to say to her, because she, she writes and she reads herself, I, I'm like, but honey, this is my passion. This is the thing that I love. It's it's everything to me, and so are you. But can you understand how I have to do this? Um, and yeah, and I think she gets it, you know. And it's just that thing of yeah, like if that was a man having to go on work trips all the time, if it, you know, maybe if I was making more money, it would it would seem more. Um, legitimate but just legitimizing you know women's pursuits um and teaching our children yeah that we have to follow our, our passions and that I'm so much happier if I can be that part of myself and I'm a better mother there's so much nodding going on in the screen just for listeners and I think you know I'm getting dizzy so we're all agreeing with exactly <laughs> what you're going to say Alison Tate changing the narrative Oh, gosh, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, one thing I, so two things in, in the main, for the main, I would really like the mental load of the FADMIN, the family admin, not to be delegated to mums all the time. Mm, yes. um, you know, whose mm-hmm. birthday is it? What day is the note due back? Who's having their vaccinations? What's, you know, just that constant tick, tick, tick all the time. Of, of it's just another little soundtrack that goes on on top of everything else that you do, um, keeping track of you know where the birthday invitations are and all that. I, I, I feel I this like in my bones. See, yeah, I would like <laughs> to see some some spreading of that. And the other thing, I guess, I'm watching too with um, uh, you know with my oldest book boy, as he's known, having finished year twelve last year, is watching my friends um, who I've been you know from kindy mums all the way through to year twelve with watching them grapple like we're not most of them you know it's not the youngest child yet it's probably the oldest so but there's still another one to come um possibly some of them it is empty nest etc for them um and I'm watching them grapple with the change in that what that means for them and what Mm. that means for their role and I would say that I think this notion of sacrifice that you talked about earlier and this notion of living your life for your kids they are going to leave you know okay they might come back they're going to be out there. They're still attached. There's going to be a string, all of those things. But for the most part, um, Al and I, and I also, you know, recognize your situation. They're, they're not. But for the most part, they're going to live their independent lives and they're going to do that without you. And so you have to have something that's about you. And that thing about you has to continue through your life. You have to follow your passions and your dreams and your desires. If you put everything on hold for your kids, you're going to get to this point and be like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody of mm. not knowing what their role is anymore. Yeah. And that's about that reclaiming identity, you know, as soon yeah. as you can, um, yeah. because otherwise, you know, the, I feel like you do lose yourself completely. Yeah. Uh, Al Campbell, tell us about changing the narrative. Um, I guess I would just say, um, to the world, and I think this comes from not just being a mother but from being an older person, is um, am I living my best life? No. No, I am not. But I am doing my best. Yeah. Even if my best doesn't look real flash all the time and you think you can do better, (laughs) come, please, I'll throw open the front door, but I bet I don't have too many takers. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm good now with whatever I do and however it looks. Mm. And I think living your best life, it's such a con, you know, like it's not even true. Like what does it even mean? Like sometimes (laughs) you're having a great day, sometimes you're having an awful day. It's not ever going to be your best life. And so I think that whole idea of living your best life, like it kind of irritates me because I'm like, what are you talking about? You you can't do that all the time. No, it's a very teenage thing. I kind of look at my, I look at Mr. PS4 downstairs, you know, 15 (laughs) years old, year 10 at the gym doing his thing. He's living his best life. But that's (laughs) It's going to last two years, you know, until he starts paying rent. Wait till you get to adulting. (laughs) Wait for it, baby. 
24 hours that you experience every emotion under the sun as a parent it's like yeah, the highest highs the lowest lows yeah and somewhere in between on the way hopefully absolutely <laughs> sandy changing the narrative yeah i just want to say thank you to al campbell i've actually just written down that as a quote that i think i might stick up on my notice board <laughs> am i living my best life no but i am doing my best mm. I, that's wow thank you for that um, I think for me, changing the narrative would have to be around that, you know, there's not one right way to do this gig. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all going to do it differently and we're all going to have different challenges that we face as mums, as writers and trying to meld those two worlds together. And, you know, we're, we're all going to stuff it up at some point too, you know, <laughs> and you know, sometimes just surviving the day is a win. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you have to let go of all of that. This is the way you should breastfeed or this is the way you should, you know, do dinners, as Maya said, or this is the way you should approach school and this is the way you should, you should, you should, you should. No, we shouldn't. Are we banning the word should? Because I'm I totally an yeah. advocate of that. Yes. <laughs> Ban the word should, you know. It's gone. We've each got to do it the best way that we can yeah I love that Beck changing the narrative my oh again so many things but I think that one of the things I would love to see just eliminated from from everyone's sort of verbiage is phrases like daddy daycare <laughs> like that and things that suggest that a father is helping you that he's doing a favor that you are lucky to receive um, for us, the fact that we want to co-parent as 50-50 as we can is incredibly radical or entitled or a crazy millennial thing to do. Um, I think you need to raise the expectations of fathers and male carers. Um, I think you need to give them some credit. I think this idea that, oh, I left them at home with dad and look at, you know, no one, you know, the kids are not going to survive. Um, it, 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 it lowers expectations. You know, my husband is not a dumb-dumb. He is a perfectly competent, capable parent who should be able to take charge and take lead. And we definitely do, you know, we find that the mental load stuff particularly, you know, we need to balance and come back to and discuss how we can, you know, shift that sometimes but a lot of it comes from outside expectations and, and really low bar thresholds for what a good dad is. Um, and I, I think I mentioned when we were preparing for the podcast, I was out surfing one morning when Ari, my oldest, was about six months old. I was talking to this woman out the back in the lineup about getting involved and you know, getting back into surfing. She said, where's the baby? And I wanted to say, oh, I've just propped him up on the beach with a bag of crisps. <laughs> it's 6 a.m he's at home with his dad you are actually okay to assume that that's the situation it was just ridiculous and um I think that men who do you know maybe want to step back from their their jobs it, it is harder for them because they're expected to not to be nurturing just to be role models just to be glory figures and they're not they're, they're parents and and they should be treated as such and you can support mums by supporting dads Mm, yeah I hate that narrative too Millie <laughs> changing the narrative uh, so I think for me it's the idea that uh, putting your child first and putting yourself first doesn't have to be mutually exclusive uh, I was the recipient of a sometimes you have to put your child first from a very well-intentioned mother quite early on at a time that was really unhelpful for me in the newborn days uh, and I like to think I've been doing a lot of research on it on motherhood and what it means to be a mother and I love this concept of interbeing which comes from um, the Buddhist teachings which is about this idea that you've got when you have a deep connection and a love for someone else the boundary between you and them disappears so your suffering becomes their suffering and your joy becomes their joy and I think that's a really beautiful idea to, to think about sort of a mother and child relationship which is that when you are your best self they're their best selves as well. Mm. Oh I love that thank mm. you so much everyone I can't believe it's been over an hour I honestly could keep you here till midnight but I won't 
Um, it's just been so in interesting to hear, you know, all of your stories and, you know, I want to thank you for your honesty as well. And I think, you know, we just do need to have more conversations like these because none of those narratives are going to change unless we keep talking about it, you know. So I really thank you for your time and for your generosity and your honesty and talking about those really hard things and what you know I think Sandy said taboo things like you know let's talk about more taboo things because I think that's the only way we can normalize them and I like the idea of you know you're working with your baby under your arm and I think because of zoom and because of COVID we've tried to normalize that a little bit you know you're not trying to shove your kids under the table if you're working it, it's life they blend into two you can't always draw a line in the sand between work and family and why should we you know that's just what our lives look like they're messy and they're chaotic and they're awesome but they're all of those things so thank you so much everyone for um for showing up in our busy chaotic lives <laughs> and i'd like danny. to quickly mention a big thank you to you danny for all the support you do for all of us authors and all the people listening in tonight as well as your fabulous book. Oh, she's got a copy. Extraordinary <laughs> mum. Really celebrating um, women in all different shapes, forms of motherhood and just embracing that and keeping the conversation going. So on behalf of everyone, thank you. Thank you. You're awesome. And that's oh, it has got one too, God. Blows my mind when people are actually holding your book, right? I'm still not getting over it. <laughs> no, but it's cool. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. I'm like, well, I can, I've got a podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. Let's talk about this. So... Thank you so much, everyone, and um, and have a great night, whatever it is you're doing for the rest of the night. Thanks for having us, Danny. 